I Hate Infinite Jest, episode 32, pages 936 to 981, the end. My guest this week is Tim Eastwood. I uh, found Tim online. Tim is basically the man. He has read Infinite Jest about five times, if you're a member of uh, Infinite Hal posting, or the... um, what is it? The David Foster Wallace subreddit or the Infinite Jest subreddit. You have read and probably marveled at the analysis of Tim Eastwood. You can find him at Twitter uh, at comes underscore a time. C-O-M-E-S underscore a time. He has read this book five times. He knows all the ins and outs. Um, I wanted to have him on for the last one because after finishing this book, I fucking hated it. Everything I liked and stuff, it really felt like I didn't like the book at first because it was so obtuse, but then all these plot threads started coming together like, ooh, this could be something really cool. And then at the last minute, David Foster Wallace just dropped all those strands and said, fuck y'all, have fun figuring it out forever. Later, skater, I'm out. And I was not a happy boy because it felt like everything I was looking forward to in it, everything that had been, like... It felt like he didn't stick the landing, like he promised all this and didn't deliver it. Well, Tim has an answer for everything, and unlike a lot of David Foster Wallace fans, he's done his research. We're going to talk about who was sending out the Samizdat, uh, who is Madame, who is Luria P, was Joelle actually burnt with acid by her mother? Um... How much of Hal's problems were just being projected onto him by James? We're going to talk... Who is the narrator of this book? Did you know this book had a narrator? Tim has it makes a compelling argument. And unlike a lot of super fans, I think I, I trust his opinion because I approached him with some of the theories I'd read, and he didn't he didn't defend all of them. I feel like real super fans, like... You know, like when you read the Star Wars fans or uh, or professional wrestling, people who love WWE, even though they've been shitting down their pant leg for like six years now, but will find a way to defend all of it. Like, actually, this is why <laughs> God, this is why they meant for ratings to go down for several years with no end in sight. Fuck you. But uh, he doesn't defend all of it. As a matter of fact, a lot of the theories he just outright dismisses because they don't have any backup. All his theories, he has backup, and I respect that about Tim Eastwood. So, let you guys know, this is not the last episode of I Hate Infinite Jest. I have recorded another episode with the boys who brought me to the dance, Dan Ostrov and Steve uh, Clark from episode one and two. Big time motivators for me to even start this podcast. We do another episode that'll be out next week. Um, and that is the first 30 pages. Like, we're going to go back. We're not doing the whole book again. We're just doing the first 30 pages to read The Year of Glad. I am in a room surrounded by heads and bodies to figure out what the... Now that things are recontextualized, what does the beginning of the book bring to the ending of the story? And then after that, we are rebranding. We are becoming the Kill Your Gods podcast where we talk about the things people love and why they should be unlovable. Uh, our first episode is going to be Napoleon Dynamite with comedian Aaron Bell. That's going to be a good one. I'm still going to do books. I think immediately after that in January, we're going to begin a five-part series on The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pinchon. So go out and get that book. Um, I, I still want to do books. I'm not sure how I'm going to do it exactly, 
but I definitely still want to do books. They're what brought me to the dance. Uh, I'm secretly terrified all you listeners are going to stop listening to me, and then it will be back to the drawing board for old Jesse Dram, who, by the way, you can find me at Jesse Dram on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. Uh, I was on Parlor for a hot minute, but then, uh, whew, those people are scary, and they'll track you down. And they'll find your public Facebook and tell you your mother sucks dick. They're still fucking idiots, but they don't fuck around. Find me at Mr. Jezgo on YouTube. And I hope you guys keep watching. Now, this episode is a day late, and not a dollar short, but a day late. Because uh, I had a severe laptop issues. Thankfully, those have been kind of resolved. Uh, I had... The interview with Tim saved, thankfully. That, that was never the issue. But I wrote a song I wanted to share for you guys. As some of you may know, this week is Christmas. The birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, or, you know, we just kind of slapped that bumper sticker on a nice pagan solstice holiday. We've been celebrating Yule around these parts. But I wrote and recorded a song for you guys where we're going to step in and talk to some of our favorite families from Infinite Jest. And it's an Infinite Jest Christmas. And I hope you guys like this, the end of the book. And then next week, I'll see you for the last episode of I Hate Infinite Jest. And unlike Infinite Jest, I love each and every one of you. And all of you are having great hair days today. Look at you in the mirror. Nobody's going to hold you back. You're going to take this world down and bend it over your knee and give it a spanking. Where was I? Infinite Jest Christmas. And may all of you have an infinite Jestmas. You know the Christmas time is a special time of year. A time to drink eggnog to excess, maybe with a nice lot of chaser. Maybe get high in Granny's basement. Not even for the high, really. More of the fun seat of it. Hey gang, let's gather around the cartridge viewer and watch our favorite 18 or 19 Christmas specials, preferably all in a row without ever leaving the couch. I got a special copy of Tiny Elves making incredibly efficient wooden toys with slave wages. But most of all, Christmas is about family. Let's check in on Christmas with some of our favorites. It's an incandenta Christmas, a wonder to be seen. Himself has taken hours, meticulously lighting the Christmas tree. There's roast turkey in the oven, and a wild one in his glass. Throw the gravy in the microwave if it gets too cold too fast. But mom, she looks so tired, she's been working so hard. She comes back out of breath after cooking with Uncle Charles. Mario films home movies with the Bolex on his head. And Hal is smiling though, we know inside he's full of dread. It's an infinite jazz Christmas, you know it never ends. Once it's done, you know you'll just want to sing it all again. The wraith of Christmas future, his darling wife Avril. One confused and one mutant son, wish you joy on Noel, on this infinite Christmas. Well, that sure was wholesome. Now you may be asking where Orin and Candenza was. Well, we'll get to him. But first, let's stop by the slums of Boston and check on a military MP speaking to his girlfriend's son about the meaning of Christmas. Donnie, go and get me as fast as you can. Another green and red Christmas edition Heineken. 
I promise that I'll treat your mom just like your real dad did. I'll keep the bruises far from where prying eyes can't see them. Just go and watch your TV and ignore the anguish cries. It's only from the squealing, squirming, wingless little flies. You know your mama loves you, a loving son couldn't ask for more. But you'll be dumb as a Brussels sprout by the time fighter on the floor. It's an infinite jazz Christmas, you know it never ends. Once it's done, you know you just want to sing it all again. Pour a drink for all the children, an extra for our bimmy boy. Learn to forget all of the bad thoughts and only think of holiday joy on this infinite Christmas. Well, that sure was sad. Poor little Donnie couldn't even kiss his mama on the cheek for months with all that hardware in the way. Well, what would you expect in a broken home? Let's take a look at a more traditional family with a mommy and a daddy and the prettiest daughter you ever did see. Let's check in with the Van Dynes. Hello, my personal daddy. Here, meet my new boyfriend. His name is Oren, and I hope you don't mind. I like you less than him. How are all of your chemicals and hydrogen chloride? And nothing makes me feel at home like the smell of formaldehyde. Well, mama, she seems so anxious. Since she said you found me cute, a she ran down to the basement. Now, what did she get into? Is she digging around? To Santa's Christmas package Oh, Papa looks like Mom got her hands on Some of your acid It's an infinite jazz Christmas You know it never ends And once it's done You'll only want to sing it all again Papa Duquette He was torn By a taboo proposal And Mrs. Duquette shook hands With brand new garbage disposal On this infinite Christmas And we are recording I Hate Infinite Jest, episode 32, 938 to 981. We're wrapping it up, guys. My guest this week, you might know him from the numerous uh, Infinite Jest groups. He's got, he's got a theory. He's done his homework, and we're going to hear all about it. Tim Eastwood, how are you doing? I am great on a Sunday. All right. That's the best you can hope for. Great, great on a Sunday, getting back to the working week. Um, so yeah, I met Tim, uh, on Twitter and a lot of the other things. He is a David Foster Wallace and infinite chess super fan. And yet he has humored me and some of my stupidity with, uh, as regards to the book and some of my complaints as I go along. So, uh, yeah, knowing how popular you are in the community, how did you actually get into David Foster Wallace in the first place? Well, first off, your com your complaints mirror pretty much everybody else's, including mine. Mm. So that was... So you're saying I'm not special and a genius? Absolutely not. You're just like everybody else. <laughs> uh, it, it, Tim, it's my except show. You should, you should flatter me a little bit. It is my show. Yeah, except better at it. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take that. Um. So I, the only reason I, got, I picked up Infinite Jess was I was working retail book selling mm. and we were just selling we were pushing and selling the usual top 10 um 
Oprah Book Club, trash. And literature was basically the last thing anybody wanted to talk to us about. So I was just getting sick of it. And I started complaining to managers and supervisors that why don't we ever do anything worthwhile? And at some point today, some two two of the two of the women, one of the managers and one of the supervisors, uh, separately suggested, well, why don't you look into Infinite Jest? That seems to be worthwhile literature. So I didn't at the time because I was too busy. Um, a couple of years later, I had a well. I wind up recovering from a from a shoulder rehabilitation. Mm. I had my whole shoulder reconstructed. So I was basically disabled for close to eight months. After the um, surgery, after the surgery, I lost the feeling in my opposite leg from from the surgery. So I just had eight months where I couldn't do anything. Now, I had to go did back the, and get the surgery revised? Did the initial sh- shoulder surgery result from uh, possibly a fracas with some Canadian men in a parking lot somewhere? Is that where it I started? Wish. That would make a good story. <laughs> nope, it was all me. Mm. Um, but so when I was done, I couldn't walk, I couldn't run, couldn't do anything outside. Could still couldn't use my right arm properly. So I just thought, well, I just got to find a book and get into it for as long as it takes. Mm. And that book came to mind, and I checked into it, and it looked like a project was worth taking on so i did okay so from like your first re- were you somebody that kind of had to warm up to it but like what was your what, what was your initial response as you got in did you love it like just from jump i i liked the writing and i liked the style and all it did was ask questions that i couldn't answer so that was just all the encouragement i needed to keep going Okay, so how many how many times do you think you've read this book? I after the first time, um, obviously I had no idea what the hell happened. Mm. Um, so I looked into some resources, took a lot of suggestions to go back and look at the beginning again. Um, went followed a reading group online while they were reading it read it again myself came up with some ideas as to what i thought happened and then read it a third time to make sure i was right so that's three times all the way through really paying attention and since then i've spent countless hours reviewing stuff helping answer people's questions looking for stuff myself i i would suppose i've been through the whole thing I followed reading groups, paid going through the whole thing. So I've probably read it myself at least five times. Okay. Well, I mean, you definitely have the wealth of knowledge I would expect to come along with that. It seems like you did. Uh, it seems like you definitely approach your rereadings with a very analytic. The fact that you said you came up with some theories and then went back to almost check your work a little bit. Again, that's how you first came to my attention was that. In, I Because I, like everybody else, I went and joined a bunch of uh, Infinite Jest groups, a lot of whom did not care for me, and I don't blame them. But, uh, <laughs> but I kept seeing whenever somebody had a theory, you would chime in and you'd always be the top comment. And people were like, the man comes again. Like, you, you, you have this figured out 
as much as it can be figured out. It seems to be the consensus. And that's why I wanted you here for the, for the big one. Um, gotta, gotta tell you, I, I've hinted at it online. I think you actually messaged me when I was complaining about it on Twitter. I think the ending actually undid a lot of what I liked about the book. I still don't know where I am. I've been looking up a lot of theories, but, um, all right, you know, let's, let's get into our notes. I already told you these are going to be a little quicker because we're trying to get to the theories. So I'm really just kind of want to get, I, I don't want to just stop this part of the podcast on episode 32, but right. we're try and get through them. So let's just run that. Uh, anytime, if you have any like detail to throw in, just interrupt. Um, I have a few questions that's going to come after some of these, but for now, let's just get right to this. Sound good, Tim? Yes, right. All right. 938 to 941. We get a small section with Helen steeply questioning Joel, mainly just get the same repeated info we have about the entertainment. She says she was in two scenes, recognizing somebody in a revolving door uh, and the motherly looking down into the camera, I'm so sorry scene. For the latter, the camera was bolted into a bassinet. Um, she doesn't think the masters would be buried with him. The camera lens was meant to reproduce an infant's field of vision. That JOI saying he made something too perfect or entertaining was a joke. So that's a quick one right there. I think the interesting thing that gets overlooked there is that she was actually in a revolving door in the first place. So what purpose does that serve in the film that he intended for? That she's going around in a revolving door. Is she, is she replacing one of his other characters? Yes. <laughs> In a revolving door of women. Okay, wait. What? Um, sorry, I think you got to lead, lead me by the hand on this one. Uh, what, what, what exactly are you getting at? I, I will give my brief thing. Just because the main thing we hear about the entertainment, we hear so much less about this revolving door thing, and we hear so much more of the motherly aspect. But I guess the revolving door thing can be kind of like you're entering the, uh, you know, death is always a woman who is your mother in the next life. You're entering the revolving door and literally you're getting like spun out and becoming like you're in there with somebody else, but you're spun out and you're different people. Is that, I don't know. Tell me, lead me. Well, this will require a slightly longer explanation. But if you you have thirty through, seconds, go. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. If you look through all of Incandenza's films, they were all made for him, about him, mm -hmm. all of them. And at the end, he had a. He, I think it was Pam Heath, the actress Pam Heath, always played the character that represents Avril. Hmm. Okay. And eventually, she was replaced as that type of love interest, sexual interest in his films by the character Metempsychosis. So the implication of her being a revolving door mm. is that she's replacing Pam Heath, okay. who is Avril, as the love interest in not only his films, but in his entire life. Okay. And I guess you have the rebirth angle right there of a, you know, a, a, a younger woman replacing the other. Your, exactly. Your lover becoming your mother. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's uh, keep, you know what? I have the question. How, what is the purpose of the, I, I don't understand how the cartridge actually finds its way 
into James's skull. Is that metaphorical or literal? And if literal, how and why? Because well, I have to. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's completely metaphorical. What okay. he told Hal was that he he was comparing what was being done to Hal to the priapistic entertainment cartridge implanted in his own brain. Well, all he's talking about, I mean, you know, when you get a song, a song stuck in your head. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all he's referring to. He's just talking to these priapistic entertainment ideas mm-hmm. that are stuck in his head and never go away. But then why... Which is, which is why his head is... No, no, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that's why his head is the master. Mm-hmm. Because everything is in his head. But and, then... and Wallace later later said, Wallace later said made a made a comment in that uh, Kenyan commencement thing mm-hmm. that the, the 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 mind is that the head is a wonderful servant but a terrible master. Oh, master. So that's the idea that the head is the master. Right, but then where co- I I understand that metaphorically, but then where comes the uh, the literal instruction later of you know the, the wraith of James asking for his physical head to be dug up? So so the the vision I think yeah you've already passed that so the vision that he gives to Gately mm-hmm. is of the kid Hal holding up the remains of his head, saying too late meaning there's nothing there. So he knows there's nothing there. He's, he's having Gately lead Hal there to, to expose that there is nothing there. Now, the, the, the USOUS and the AFR, they're not that smart. They think there's something buried in his head. So hmm. that's, what, that's what they're trying to find. Presumably, they've seen the movie... Mm-hmm. of his professional conversationalist scene where he said that the privistic entertainment was stuck in his brain. <laughs> okay, but then but but then what's why what what is the purpose then in how seeing the and that that in and of itself is a weird thing because when I first read the ending uh and we'll get to that but like is 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 Gately seeing the future, or is he seeing an instruction of what James wants him to do? But then we exactly. Have this, but then, but then we have the confirmation that it actually happened in the, um, you know, rereading it again in the very beginning, where Hal says, "Unless the Wraith is projecting the same thing onto Hal," where while he's uh, freaking out at the admissions office when he suddenly thinks of himself and Don Gately and John Wayne in a mask, I don't understand the mask aspect there, digging up his head, that this is something that actually happens, I think. Right. So what James did, so you remember, you know there was a whole spiel about him putting ghost words into Gately's head. Yes. So this is just a ghost image or a ghost movie, basically, that he wants Gately to see. And so Gately's encouraged to participate um, in this, remember in this image, mm-hmm. he has Gately eating bags of snack food and right. Joel wearing no underwear. So that's mm-hmm. just to get him to go. That obviously hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Now what Hal 
Hal remembers in Year of Glad a year later is what actually happened. Remember, he doesn't mention Joel. He just mentions right. that, that he was there with Gately digging up his father's head. Okay. Which means it actually did happen. They did go and dig it up and hopefully prove to John Wayne and the AFR that there was nothing there. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, you know what? Let me, let me ask you what comes from there. And uh, this also doesn't have anything to do with the fact that my computer, the other computer that failed us the first time, has crashed again and my notes along with it. So I will just <laughs> go with another question I have here. Um, so one of the features I've found as I've been reading a lot of the theories after the fact is uh, there's not it, there's a weird amount of consensus, but it really seems to be inferred from like a sentence. And I realize some of that is at play. Wallace did intend you to kind of, you know, piece it together yourself. But some of it, everybody seems to be of the agreement that John Wayne is working with the AFR and that after he, he basically betrays them to help Don and Hal, but from there is assassinated from the AFR and I actually, by the AFR. And I didn't, I can't find anything in the text that supports that, but it's all over the theories. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? The ultimate fate of John Wayne? Right. And no. Instructor mm. uh, working for us at ETA. Right. So John Wayne would obviously be the student working for them. Yeah, there's no other real um, candidates in the student. Hal says that, that Hal says that he's not coming back. Hal says that John Wayne won't be playing in the Whataburger. Mm -hmm. So all we know is that he's the spy. Mm -hmm. He was there hiding um, while they dug up the head. And he didn't come back. That's all we know. Okay. So obviously, okay. if he was there hiding, somebody figured out that he was a spy. So he can't go back to ETA. Right. Because there's no that... indication that he was killed, just that he couldn't go back. Right. Yeah. Because that's all we really get is Hal several times just being like, he would have definitely won the Whataburger. And we never get the why he won't but there's definitely a, a, a notion of yeah he would have won the whataburger if not for dot 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 right. hmm. um okay i got another let, let me ask are, are you coming am i coming through clear to you right now because you're actually getting a little like uh pixelated audioly if that makes any sense I think we might have lost Tim. Uh, oh. Your image isn't stable, and every... All right. I'm going to try to stop. Your image isn't stable? Uh-huh. And every few minutes, I get a weak connection notice. Okay. Well, I, I just I, turned off my video and uh, immediately you started coming through clearly. So let's, could, could you just say something real, real yep. quick so I can see how you're coming across now? Yep. Yep. I'm here. 
Okay, I I think it's better if we just don't do the video then. Sorry, listeners, this is just uh, some quick tech stuff. Okay, so we'll go without the video from here on because that seems to be helping out a little bit. Is that okay? Definitely, yeah. Sure. Okay, so um, have another question. This one being, uh, so I, I will give you the theory as I've heard it. One of which is that, so, well, okay, you know what? This one I actually remember from my notes, so I don't need my notes to be working for that. Uh, we, see, we find Oren. He is in a tube. And outside of the tube, looking at him, is the wheelchair fan from the hotel and the Swiss hand model. The Swiss hand model is to revealed to be the uh, deadly Loria P that we have heard about several times throughout the book as one of the Quebecois rebels. And uh, they are dumping roaches into his tube to try and get information on the Samizdat. So I've read a few theories on this. One of them being that uh, Oren does seem to be alive at the beginning of the book. Hal makes mention of him and doesn't really make mention of any major anything that would have happened to him. So uh, it seems to be he's alive. A lot well, the of coach people... says that he's an NFL player. He's playing in the NFL. Right. That's right. That's right. The, uh, the athletics admission guy. But from there, a, a lot of people seem to think that Oren is the one sending out the Samizdat, which like there's there's hints relating to it, but for me personally, that seems so outside of Oren's character that I I'm having a hard time buying it. Uh, what are do you have any thoughts on that particular notion? That obviously again gets way complicated. The all of the hints are that. Oren at least had possession of some of the cartridges. One of the one of the cartridges was found in uh, New Iberia when Oren was playing for the Saints. One of the cart the next cartridge was found at a Tempe Film Festival, mm. and there's an entire uh, narrative about how one of Oren's subjects, who was a Arizona State student, which is at Tempe, um, how he wanted to send her kid an expensive present. Okay, I remember this now. So that is apparently where that disc got to the film festival. <laughs> hmm. And the one that was sent to uh, the medical attaché. Right, the, the postmark was from Tempe as well. Or from Phoenix. Yeah. For Phoenix, okay. But again, that's part of the issue for me. And well, it would also uh, really give credence to why exactly. Well, now we know Steeply and Marat are in Tucson the whole time trying to, you know, get something on Oren. It's just, I, uh, oh, and the other, the other hint is that in the filmography, the final, um, not intro, whatever. The the final thing we see where it refers to the last version of Infinite Jest says that uh, the only known copies are being distributed posthumously by the family through P Poor Yorick Entertainment Unlimited, which seems to be something in the will some uh, executor of his estate is sending them out, which again would apply to Oren. But again, this just doesn't feel like Oren's character to me, which is what confuses me so much this guy who had such a disconnection from i mean i guess having a disconnection from his father you could make the leap to say 
he's doing this not knowing what it's doing. And that's actually another thing as I've read. Other Correct. People, other people have said that like, oh, well, no, see, he's sending it out to a bunch of his, and it, well, sorry, I'm folding it on myself right here. A uh, bunch of people saying, well, it's being sent out to a lot of uh, James and Candenza's enemies, but then you can really take that kind of motivation away from Oren, and maybe it just says that in the will, and he's just doing as the will says. Send to this medical attache who happened to be sleeping with your mother. Send this to these film critics who happen to not respect my work. I'm going to shut up. You tell me what you think of this. <laughs> well, you're right. So, so if Oren knew what he was doing... Why would one have been found abandoned in New Iberia? And why would another one have apparently been sent by him as a gift uh, to one of his, to his subject's kid? Mm -hmm. Why would he have done those two if he knew what he was doing and was following directions? He doesn't know what he's doing with it. He doesn't even know what it is. All right, I'm I'm buying this theory much more now. Now that I've really come to that thought, just because the pro the part of it is that Oren is so self obsessed that I could not one I could not imagine him caring this much about his father's legacy to send these out, and two I couldn't imagine him doing something so nefarious and not being all consumed because we spend a lot of time with Oren and he's not really thinking about this. He's not thinking about avenging his father's legacy. He's thinking about getting laid and all sorts of right. shit. Like, well, if, okay. If, so, so consider this, okay. how would Oren know what the, what these, what these, uh, cartridges are? How would he know what's on them? He hasn't watched them or he'd be a victim too. Mm -hmm. The only, the only, the first, the first cartridge that causes trouble is the one sent two years uh, prior to this to the film critic. And there's no connection to Oren with that whatsoever. So, so my take is that the, the one was sent to the film critic to glorify Incandenza's entertainment. Um, oh, okay. Once, so he, once he Incandenza to... found out it was lethal, then he was trying to find ways to get it to his enemies, mm -hmm. and is using Orin as the scapegoat for getting them sent out. See, this also fills in with something else, which uh, I, I I wanted to hit on. That I I was kind of noting that um, there's a few different angles to look at here. So there's definitely a theme throughout the book that the Incandenza family cannot actually listen to each other aside from mario right because we see them multiple times like upon rereading the beginning of the book and i get on this in the next episode um i noted that uh you know james disguises himself as a professional uh conversationalist to speak with hal and Hal, in, in his whole thing is like you know i need to hear something from my son but to actually hear al uh hal in that segment and also, it seems to me that entire chapter is actually just like a direct recording transcript because not only do we not, there's no like direction, there's no so-and-so thought, so-and-so did this. It's all dialogue, even to the extent that a lot of the onomatopoeia of like soda being open and drank is transcribed as well. So looking at that from as neutral a territory as you can, it almost reads to me like Hal is a normal if maybe little weird kid for his age and james is really projecting his own thing at not being understood 
at Hal, even so much that he's imploding at the end, like, you know, I'm doing all this, even though your mother's fucking everybody in sight, and ba 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 and Hal's just kind of like, yeah, okay, Dad, that's, uh, that's good. I'm going to go. Exactly. And, the, and I think the, the reason that that scene plays, it plays both like a conversation, because that's what Wallace wants it to be about, mm-hmm. failing to communicate in a conversation, and like a film, because that's how Incandenza mm-hmm. presents his work. So at the end of that scene, at the beginning of the scene, he and Hal are conversing perfectly normally. He's, he's responding right. to what his dad's saying. He's saying, uh, no, I'm not. 14 i'm 11 mm-hmm. and so he goes back and says oh let me go correct that in your in my notes oh, by the, the end uh incandenza is just ranting incoherently and hal keeps saying why are you saying this what are you what are you trying to say and he doesn't stop and answer him he just keeps mm-hmm. talking right so so eventually hal just gives up and that's where the ellipses are there because james says well why don't you answer why don't you say anything and Hal just doesn't say anything. It's just like, fuck you. I've been asking you questions the whole time and you're not listening to me. Right. And uh, the place I was actually going with that is, uh, so we have, and it's actually stated by um, Joel that Oren seems to have like this big melodramatic, like, why won't my father listen to me? But Joel actually states outright that like, this doesn't seem like any, this doesn't seem like any crippling relationship bigger than the weirdness that happens between a lot of sons and fathers whereas Oren seems to believe it's this big like horrible Shakespearean tragedy that like my father I cannot reach him but then again I think it would speak right there that he has all this um oh okay again my notes have still not come back up but I remember part of it where uh where recounted the story Oren is telling Hal about this, that James and Candenza had found out that Oren and some of the Enfield kids were all going to watch a porno. And James had pulled him aside. And in like the one true fatherly moment we see from him in this entire novel, gives him the spiel of, uh, listen, I'm not going to get in the way of you and your friends watching this if you really want. But if I were to, I wouldn't want you to do that. I would want you to know that sex can be so much bigger and life-changing, and I don't want you getting the wrong idea from it from film. And immediately, Oren just gets the wrong thing out of it. Uh, Hal mentions, like, and Oren just thinks, like, Dad thought I was still a virgin. What a putz. So you get this idea of Oren as just, like, this full-of-himself piece of shit, and now to come all the way back around to the point I was trying to get to, this yep. is why I have a podcast, because I can just talk my fucking head off, uh, <laughs> to come back around in a circle that Oren, I could totally see, filling out some of the duties in the will, but despite being so concerned about his father's communication, would never bother to actually watch his father's art to try and figure out. He, he would put no... He's so... His communication problems with his father have nothing to do with his father and everything to do with how Oren feels. So why would he give a fuck about an actual thing in his hand that was his father trying to communicate with the world? Because Mario, uh, Mario, Oren doesn't really care. It doesn't affect him. He would rather whine about it than do any investigation. Correct. And I think there's a, there's a segment somewhere where, where Joel's, Joel and uh, Oren's relationship is developed that Oren says he never watched any of himself's films anyway. 
Hmm. And there you have it. Yeah. Okay. So I guess that would fall in with some of the other stuff in, uh, so the question is how, and I don't have an answer to this. The question is how and why was Oren compelled to send the cartridge to the medical attache? Hmm. And the happy anniversary just throws all kinds of confusing questions in there because it's the anniversary of Incandenza's putting his head in the microwave. Oh, wait, that's right. Is that what the actual package itself said? Happy anniversary that got sent to the yes. medical Okay. So um, my take, my take is basically that the Oren sees Oren obviously sees the medical attaché as com- competition for his love with his mother. Okay, that's another thing we have to get to right there because that <laughs> comes up a lot. Does Avril sleep with Oren? Because there seems to be the thing they seem to indicate that. Whatever happened that uh, led to James killing himself, James saw the name of somebody written in the fog in the backseat of the car, and the theory that many people have is that it said Oren, that Avril had sex with Oren, and James was so disturbed by this that he went and killed himself for one of many reasons. What are, what are your thoughts on this? I think that that's deliberately not answered in in the text anywhere. I think... The, whole, the, the, the only whole person relation- who says it, I believe Molly Notkin is the one who says, like, oh, she's probably sleeping with her son. Yeah, well, I think she says that she definitely slept with him at some point. Hmm. And there's no... And I think, so that would have come from Joel. Joel probably told Molly Notkin that he was probably sleeping with her at some point. But I think the, the, the point of the relationship, which is why I don't think that this is ever resolved in the text, is that it's Oren's obsession with his mother. And it's clearly reciprocated by Avril. She's wearing football gear uh, like Oren when she's having her tryst with John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there's, there's very little... And, and, of, and of course, eventually we find out that... Well, no, that's a that's a different issue um but i don't think that it's ever made clear who did what i think what's important in the narrative is that orem's orem's obsessed with like has an oedipal complex with his mother Mm -hmm. and his mother encourages it why do you think he stopped he steeps he stops talking to her because that seems to actually predate James and Candenza's suicide. I could see something like, uh, again, looking at this from a real-world thing, I could see something like James killing himself and Oren blaming Avril and then not speaking to her. However, it seems as if he wasn't speaking to her even before then. And then what would be that genesis? Unless seducing him, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that one. I think the fa- he stopped communicating with the family after Incandenza's death. There's not much about his communicating with um, with Avril. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we do know that he calls uh, Hal on occasion. No, no, he only started calling Hal this spring. Okay, okay. Which, which obviously after the cartridge had been sent to the medical attaché. That's presumably the only reason he's calling, to find out what the deal with that was. Oh. 
Okay. He hadn't he hadn't talked to Hal since since uh, before James killed himself. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um. All right. Let's let, 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 let's try something else a little bit, just because I feel like we've hit everything we really can there. Uh, <laughs> yep. If I can, if I can pay some honor to uh, some of the work you put in, you're kind of, I went into this episode with a lot of like, all right, let's try to get through this bullshit. And now talking to you like, oh, I guess that does kind of make sense. And it's feeling a little less, uh, I, I wouldn't say open-ended because it's hard to say what even an ending is in this book. Because it's kind of right. like the, the, the ending of this book is, and life goes on forever, the end. But uh Okay, so let's let's talk about Barry Loach a little bit here. Um, what what do you think is the significance of the entire Barry Loach thing and how it applies? Oh wait, hold on. I have one other thing. Is Lyle a wraith? It depends on how you define wraith. So so when James and Condenza tells, let me see if I can if I gotta find the. Here. So when when James and Cadenza tells Gately that he's a wraith, the phrase he uses isn't it like just your everyday garden variety? Yes, a generic garden variety wraith. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? That means that there's something better than a garden variety wraith. Than a generic yeah. garden variety rate. That means there's something more special, <laughs> as far as Incandenza knows. I mean, well, here's the thing. I would have taken that as a joke, but at the same time, we hear from Joel a few times saying the entire notion of making something too entertaining. Like, no, he meant that as a joke. So we have right. we have in the story a history of people taking something he says as a joke and being wrong. So. Okay, so what would be another kind of wraith then? I mean, we have Lyle, so he's some kind of guru. If he is a wraith, he doesn't seem to have uh, quite as much of the focus problems of like the trouble of staying still long enough to be uh, seen by mortals. So Lyle's development—it's—it's pretty—it's pretty brief. He doesn't show up much as a character in the story. So what's there is pretty, I think, pretty simple to piece together. So obviously, Gately saw him appear with James and called him another Wraith. Yes. So he was acting just, in other words, Gately knows he was acting just like James. He flitted in and out. Okay. Just like James did. So how did he do that? I just had a thought, just the sheer thought of being in the sauna where there's a lot of steam and being obfuscated, like that might that might uh, fix a lot of the problems with like visual processing that it seems like James is having if you're in a place where the vision is already obscured a little bit. I mean, where else in a, but a steam room, you know, <laughs> could you hide that a little bit? Um, well, so, the, so the, the, let's see, the Barry Loach story is, I think it's basically to, it's basically a religious story where Barry Loach's brother tries to be a priest and he doesn't find it working for him. It, so Mario Mario it, comes it is and saves him. 
it is very much a religious parable. Like it, it almost reads a little bit like Muhammad and the mountain. Like there were two brothers, one lost faith and challenged the other to go out. Like it, it reads very biblical. Right. And uh, so for the listener, the gist is that Barry Loach is from a huge Catholic family and the mother has a dream that one of her children will become a priest. Uh, we go down the line and a bunch of them either die, one of them uh, transitions into a woman, so that's not the case. Barry's last hope, because all Barry wants to be is an athletic trainer. And Barry's last hope is his older brother who goes and goes to seminary, but then loses his faith. So Barry, not wanting to destroy his mother, really has to convince his other brother to stay in seminary. And right. his brother goes on a thing of uh, just how hollow it is and people not really believe it. So pretty much saying, like, if you can go pretend to be a homeless person and if you can get one person to touch you, not give you money, just stand out there and ask for human touch and somebody does it, I will have my faith in humanity restored. Barry goes out and people avoid him. He actually- For months. <laughs> for months. And I love the detail that I have no problem getting money. He gets enough money that he actually is <laughs> making more than he was in his like temp job at the time for the university. But nobody will touch him until one day a mutated little boy who was sent out to get coins for parking sees him and good old lovable empathetic uh, Mario just gives him his gnarled S-shaped little dinosaur hand. Right. And Barry ends up at Enfield and uh, after, after a coach mysteriously dies in the sauna who seems to allude to Lyle he becomes like the head athletic trainer through this through this miracle that you know it, it's almost you know the story of job he goes through these hard times and yet is rewarded in the end which i don't think job is actually rewarded it's a sunday i'm doing this instead of going to church so yeah. my facts aren't all in order but i have most of them in there um, right well the barry loach barry loach becoming head trainer happened before incandenza died right right um and the narrative there is the the then head trainer he replaced the then head trainer and as a result of what happened the the locks were removed from the sauna and the thermostat hardwired down to 50 degrees celsius right so we so yeah for me that does confirm at the le you're saying he's some other kind of wraith but at the least it does feel to me that he is definitely a, and I saw some people arguing about that online. And this is another thing I found uh, looking for the theories afterwards is a lot of people are basing their theories on nothing. Cause I saw a guy say, Oh, Lyle's a wraith. And like a dozen people showed up to argue with him, but it seems like as much as anything is cut and cut and dry in this book, pardon the pun for a steam room and dry. It seems about as cut and dry as anything in this book that, yes, Lyle is some kind. The Lyle we have met licking sweat and consoling and counseling these students is some kind of otherworldly dead man creature. Right. I'm looking for what I've written about. About Lyle. So the students. So currently Lyle just sits in the weight room. Right, yeah, um, and they say he never leaves, he never eats, he's never seen outside of it. Right, but his advice on conditioning and injury prevention tends to be pretty solid is the consensus. There we go. Well, that, that pretty much sounds like a head trainer. Yeah. 
I mean, keep in mind, this is like 700 pages before you find out that the head trainer died. <laughs> Wait, as a matter of fact, don't they make mention of him outside of the steam room once uh, him and James and Mario are in another room somewhere? But it's, it's said that it was a long time ago. So this that was been... during the Clipperton. The Clipperton debacle. era, yes, yes. Um, okay. Then there's mention of late at night of James and Condenza conferring late at night with Lyle in the newly outfitted ETA weight room. So Lyle was apparently in the ETA weight room when ETA opened. Hmm. Um, the, the one I find the most convincing is Lyle advises Graham Raider He's asking about some problem, and Lyle brings up this hypothetical situation. And he tells Graham Raider not to just stand there before the door, jingling the keys, afraid to try the first key. Mm. Which okay. sounds like something somebody would say after they got Dying. locked in a sauna and didn't yeah. get out. <laughs> so before I, before I forget, again, my computer with the notes has not come back to life. It's a, it's a real thing. And I'm realizing I'm remembering more than I realized. So before I forget, we actually finally see the uh, assistant district attorney that Gately has been so terrified all this time has been waiting outside his room. Right. And yeah, Joelle is returning home to Enfield and she sees a police car out front. And we join in to see the assistant district attorney speaking with Pat Montesian. And we get the fun revelation that he is not stalking Gately to put him away forever but has in fact recently gotten sober himself and is trying to make amends with Gately from having hunted him down so uh, vociferously. As part of his own 12-step program, yeah. Exactly. Which, um, yeah, not a lot to theorize on there, but I, I like that little detail as just a last-minute, uh, just be kind of a side story. As somebody we've only heard ideas obviously uh, it was gately and one of his cohorts i don't remember which that broke into this da's house and then left everything untouched and then two months later sent in the mail photos of them with their toothbrushes inserted into their rectums which of course right. the district attorney and his wife who is now quite a germaphobe for pretty obvious reasons uh, and gately been... had only done that in retribution for getting a for having to get sober on a like a 30-day uh jail term that wasn't valid right, so he was right. just getting even with the with this da by do, because of what he'd put him through mm -hmm. and of course it's the it's it's gately getting let me see it's gately getting yeah that's something different but but it's gately getting uh getting busted I think for the I'm not sure I can't remember what he gets busted for but he gets busted um, and he's he's in jail and I think it, it might have been related yeah it was related to the to the Duplessis burglary where he stole mm. uh, the cartridges and, and left him to die right okay um, um, so he's in jail for that and he gets bailed out his his uh, probation officer his probation officer to keep him from getting in more trouble sends him to Ennett House where he can't be prosecuted right okay there's a question I have right there um, we've heard this is a smaller detail but 
fuck it. That's what we're here to talk about. Um, we've heard that the wait line for Ennit is pretty long. Right. The, the, the fact that it's made mention of how Joel got in there is a mystery to everyone. Right. Um, how, how does Gately get in there so easily, it would seem? I think there's mention of it being a favor between mm. the public defender and the legal community. Okay. Okay. So that, that one's a pretty quick, uh, yeah. Cut and dry then. Um, here's another one I was thinking of. I've read a lot of people thinking that Loria P is Avril and I don't see how that works. Uh, have you, have you at least heard that theory before? Oh yeah. I, I, I'm not convinced that that's revealed either. So remember in the professional conversationalist mm -hmm. scene, um, uh, James brings up uh, what was it? Well, I mean, my thing is at the end, Loria P is pretty explicitly said that it was the Swiss hand model Correct. that Oren has spent the last few days with. Now, Correct. It could be rather here nor there whether Oren has slept with his mother, but I think we would know if Oren slept with his mother in the last few days while we're reading it happen. So, however, uh, oh. there are several mentions in the text to Avril having wonderful hands, mm. which is suspiciously curious. And the, the, uh, you'll see a lot of people saying that the names are the same, Avril and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Luria as an anagram. Right, the V and the U being like interchangeable in Quebecois, uh, French, or, or yeah, Greek. In Greek, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and but then again, Oren has been sleeping with women that remind him of his mom left and right. I mean... But he doesn't look at their faces is kind of implied in several instances. Even when he carries the Swiss hand model to bed, it says he carries her to bed like a waiter would a tray, which means he's not looking her in the face. Yeah. And this incident in the with the roaches poured into the upside-down glass, he doesn't realize what's going on until he clears the glass and sees the face. And how, how would how would Luria P know that Orin was afraid of roaches? Only his mother knows that. Uh, I they've been spying on him enough that I think we get we get the uh, the details of Orin's place where he has the roaches covered under glass tumblers in his apartment. I mean, with first off, with somebody who sleeps around as much as he does, but not only that, but has been being followed by both the U.S. and uh, Quebecois. The U.S. government and the Quebecois rebels. Like, I don't think it would be too hard to grab that detail. I don't know. It just. It, w w what is your personal opinion, though? Do you think Avril is Loria, or is that an illusion, or is there just not enough information to say one way or another? We also I had the detail that Avril has not left Enfield in many years; hasn't left the grounds. Well, she hasn't been seen leaving the grounds. Mm. <laughs> but she disappears at some point. Nobody knows where she is. Okay. And the idea is that that Avril is working with we know she well, we know she worked with Quebecois separatists. Right. And Luria P is a Quebecois separatist agent. And she also knows Duplessis. 
as does Avril. Mm-hmm. There, there are lots of these kinds of connections. Uh, again, I don't think I don't think it's meant to be in the text that she is mm-hmm. that they're the same person, but I think they're playing the same roles, and I think Oren sees them as the same person. However, in the text, there is something that doesn't jive with that, and kind of points to the fact that she is indeed Avril. Do you recall what that is exactly? I don't. And it's and it's pretty vague and pretty deep. But if it wasn't Avril, it wouldn't make sense. But again, it's not an answer. Right. It just okay. means it doesn't make sense. <sighs> okay. Okay. So I think I think they're just supposed to represent the same the same uh desire of Orange. Right. Okay. All right, that works. Um you know, before I go any further, let me ask, do you have any do you have a particular pet theory of yours? Like, do you have a specific one that you think, like, a lot of people miss this one, but I personally think I'm, like, right on the money with this one? Or even one that you think is particularly interesting that a lot of people don't get? The one I, I don't understand why people don't get is who's, who's narrating the whole story. All right, yes, you put a lot of emphasis on that. You actually sent me some of other... Uh, of Wallace's work yeah, yeah, that's right. around the time of Infinite Jest that really involves a very specific language and punctuation uh, hint that you think reveals a lot. Why don't, you, um, why don't you lay that out for us? Well, I'll tell you first why I don't think anybody pays any attention to it. The second time, the first time I read through it, I didn't really, I didn't really notice this. And by the end of the first chapter, it's the last thing on your mind. The second time I went through it to figure out what the hell was going on, I noticed it right away. So all of the dialogue in the book starts with a single quotation mark. And the rule for American grammar is that quotations are always, always use double quotation marks first, and that single quotation marks are only ever used for a quote within that quote. So since all of the dialogue is first presented with a single quotation mark, that means they're within a bigger quote. And since there's never a quote introduced, there's never another quote introduced that uses double quotation marks, that means that the beginning and the end of the book are the beginning and end of one quote. As in this is all being told by one narrator. Correct. And by one person, well, and by a character in this fictional story. Right. Uh, do you recall where exactly that first um, quote is? The, the first it's, quote marks? I think it's on the first page. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm seeing right here. The very first one we see is uh, he uh, Hal is speaking to the dean at left, past a packet of computer sheets by the shaggy lion of a dean at center. He is speaking more or less to these pages, smiling down. Single quotation mark, you are Harold in Candenza 18. Dot, Correct. Dot, dot. So, okay, so right from there. Hmm. And again, anybody else, I wouldn't really put a lot of, uh, I would think it was maybe a style choice, but that, what was the specific link you sent me that kind of showcased this entire idea? That you right, it was, a the, it was the short story here and there. Uh huh. Because it uses both. There's a character in that short story who's telling a story. Yes. And the therapist he's telling it to 
her dialogue is in nor- in normal double quotes. Right, and that and is the story he's the story. telling is a conversation he, between with the features two characters. Right, he is telling a story using single quotation marks, and then the first time we see double quotation marks, it is his therapist chiming in on how he is telling the story. Correct. Yep. And you said, where was that chronologically uh, vis-a-vis Infinite Jest? Was that like a little bit beforehand? It was, it was the short story collection he published right before Infinite Jest. All right. What do you think that reveals about the book? I mean, well, obviously you have the big one that you said it's being told by a character within the book. I think I have an idea who that is, but uh, maybe you should tell us who, what you think. Well, what do you think? Uh, I think it has to be. Well, you know what? Let me give you a little bit of my evolution on this. My first, there, there are plenty of there are plenty of reasonable possibilities until you find contradictions in the text. Okay. Well, um, I initially had a thought, not even being aware that this might be a concept with the um, the quotation marks as a hint. Very early on, I noticed one of the footnotes seemed to be written in Hal's voice. Right which uh, suggested that maybe Hal was at the very least the author of all these footnotes, but maybe that the entire thing we're reading, Hal is in fact the author. I've heard other people say James is the author, but, uh, or the, the narrator. Um, I don't have a solid leaning one way or another because I, okay. haven't, I haven't quite thought of all the implications that would arise from this, but who, who do you have your money on? So a lot of people think the, the if there is, and as we've already discussed, there certainly only is one person telling the whole thing. But a lot of people think that it must be Hal because the first, the opening chapter of the book is obviously from Hal's point of view. Mm. He's obviously, it's obviously his, his, what he's seeing, what he's thinking, and what he thinks he's saying. Um, however, <laughs> to disprove that right off the bat, what about the scene where the tunnel club is playing, uh, where the tunnel club is looking through the tunnels below the ETA tennis courts while Hal and Ortho Stice are playing up above? Hmm. How, how is Hal supposed to be seeing that happen? Right. So that's not possible. <laughs> right. Okay. Well then, wouldn't that? And, and obviously, that? also a lot of stuff like the the historical stuff, um, uh, any number of things that Hal would have no way of being able to see. But the entire notion of Gately, unless Gately somehow informed him of all this after the fact, and Gately obviously wouldn't be able to have seen any of this either. Right. So. The obvious clue is back when the Wraith is talking to Gately, and he says, uh, where'd it go? Uh, the Wraith said, even a garden variety Wraith could move at the speed of Quanta and be anywhere, anytime, and hear in symphonic toto the thoughts of animate men. Okay, so not only... So he can would... be anywhere, anytime, and hear anybody's thoughts. Right, so he would be privy to all that told. information. Yeah. 
Okay. Now, when you get to the historical stuff, there's obviously stuff about um, about the time the time James's father was in the garage with him. Remember that when he was uh-huh. drunk trying to in Tucson in the Tucson garage. Uh, no, I'm not gonna be able to find it. Remember that scene where um, where his father's drunk and he's trying to tell James Jr. that he's going to be a great tennis player? Yeah. Well, so that's obviously not something the narrator's observing at the time. Right. But certainly something James incidentally remembers and could tell. Yeah, I mean, if if you're coming from that point of view where somebody is telling this entire story, one individual person for right. for those flashbacks alone, I don't think it could be anybody but James. Right, and the only flashback, the only flashbacks in the story that aren't being told from a character remembering it are James and Condenza's memories. Right. Okay. You know what? While we are talking now about uh, memory, why don't we get to the actual like black and white words on the page? No more after this ending of this book. And that is Gately lying in the hospital bed. Um, again, I'm going to go from memory here because my notes have never come back up, but apparently I never needed them because I'm doing okay without them. Uh, so Gately is lying in the bed he is thinking of uh, what happened between him and Fackelman. Fackelman obviously ripped off Whitey Sorkin. Um, Bobby C., of all people, if you were to ask me what minor character in this book do you think suddenly pops up at the end, Bobby C. would not be anywhere on that list. Um, yeah, right. Because Bobby C. we saw with um, yours truly – and poor Tony earlier in the right. novel. And remind me, is Bobby the one that gets the hot shot from Dr. Yep. Wu? Okay. Yep. So you don't feel sorry for him anymore, do you? I didn't feel sorry for him in the first place, honestly. But <laughs> So we see him earlier in the book with, uh, we know poor Tony is hiding this entire time because, you know, he's a drug addict. But uh, they ripped off, is it Dr. Wu or Mr. Wu? Mm, I want to say Dr. Wu. Dr. Wu. Dr. Wu. Okay. You know, have you ever, uh, this is going to get weird for a second. Have you ever seen the uh, black exploitation tribute film, Black Dynamite? I haven't seen it, but I, I want to say I've heard somebody make the reference to the character. Yeah. Okay. Well, they made a, a cartoon of that as well. But one of the jokes they make of the movie is like every time it seems the plot is resolved, there's a a new major villain who's been behind everything that we've not heard of at any point previously. And one of them is we think the main boss is like destroyed. And then the phone rings like, Dr. Wu, I should have known it was you all along. So awesome. So as far as I'm concerned, Infinite Jest and Black Dynamite take place in the same universe because Dr. Wu is there. (laughs) Apparently. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, poor Tony is pretty much on the run from Dr. Wu. They ripped him off in one way or another, but he was the only guy they could cop heroin from. However, after copping, Bobby C immediately died, indicating he'd been giving a hot shot, 
which it looks like is what he is about to deliver to Fackelman. He breaks in the door, beats the shit out of Gately before immediately saying like, by the way, Gately, you're cool, but I had to make sure you didn't interfere here. Whitey right. knows you're okay. A uh, bunch of people pour in the front door. Poor Tony, presumably among them, because we have a bunch of uh, men in drag and red boas. Yeah. And they shoot Fackelman up with something, which at first Gately thinks is Narcan, uh, you know, bring him out of his high, but that doesn't seem to actually be the case. Then he shoots Gately up with something as well, something called Sunshine. Is Sunshine right. mentioned anywhere else in the book? The drug, no. Okay, okay. It said, it, it's said to be the third most powerful street drug in Boston behind uh, heroin and DMZ. Right, and, and it's obviously just meant metaphorically. What do you mean? Being sunshine. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no, we don't have the actual. I figured that might be like the street name for it, but we have no idea what this actually is he's being shot up with. But um, I, I think I think it says it, uh, I think it says that the the end note says what it is. Oh, you know what? This might be my own damn fault because I just I remember when I was reading the end, the last few footnotes were all drug names, which uh, personally, if I have to be honest, I felt to be like the least necessary of all of these. Um, some are, some aren't. Yeah. Okay, so end note three eighty seven. Oh, okay, you have it too. I had it pulled up as well. There you go. Uh, Metro Met Boston's third hardest thing to street cop after raw Vietnamese opium and the incredibly potent DMZ. Sunshine is a chemical name manufactured by Sanofi Winthrop. Mm -hmm. uh, penta pentazosine hydrochloride and methanamic acid. Right. Uh, a non-narc non analgesic uh, described as a nuclear grade mydol. Weird. Right. Okay. So, but yeah, so he's shot up with this and Gately starts, I, I gotta be honest at this exact moment, I'm forgetting what exactly we see. Do they show, um, wait, it, do, do they show um, Fackelman the entertainment or? No, this is year of, this is year of uh, the Whopper. This is year of the Whopper. Okay. I'm also trying to remember this without my notes, which, and also I finished this part of the book like two weeks ago. So I'm having a little bit of just like forgetfulness, unfortunately. So what exactly do they do to Fackelman here? They're, they shoot him up with something. Are they shooting him up with sunshine or did they actually shoot him up? No, with no, I, they, I can't remember offhand, but they sew his eyelids open. It's like, a uh, shoot. What's the movie? Um, Clockwork Orange. Right, right. No, he's just he's just playing a movie on. They just him and Gately had were looked looked like they were playing the Incandenza film Many Small Flames or something on the viewer. Right, and there was also something on the viewer where like there was an image. It sounded like a description of one of the uh, advertisement illustrations that were mentioned earlier about the headaches. Only of the pain. Of, yep. Of the pain, and it's Whitey Sorkin, almost to like you know this is the pain you put him through by ripping him off. Exactly. But basically, it seems like they're just going to torture Fackelman to death. And right. Gately just passes out high as fuck and then wakes up uh, on a beach where it's rainy and the tide is out low. And that's where the book ends. So and that's, that's why that happens at the beginning of the year of the Whopper, because that's the Whopper. Okay. Wait. What? How? How is that the Whopper? What do you mean? 
Actually, come to think of it, the Whopper is the only one of the subsidized time names that doesn't seem to be related to hygienics in one way or another. Well, the Whopper is also something important that happens. It's also a big lie. So this is the big thing that happened. This is the big narrative thing that happened in Year of the Whopper. Okay, tell me why that is important. Because for me, it, this just seems like it does. It, it would make sense if like Gately was, I, I've read a lot of the, this is supposed to symbolize Gately being reborn. But for me, I would think reborn being he would end up in the sober house or whatever and start trying to clean himself up. Where as where, where he wakes up here, we still have the entire thing with Duplessis to come. Like he doesn't, it, Gately doesn't strike me as looking at the narrative and the chronology of it. Gately does not strike me as a changed man yet from this particular instance. I, I may be wrong. You tell me, you tell me, I nope. have no idea. And that is, that is basically the point of the book <laughs> that this, this, uh, being, being spared by, uh, Fackelman, mm -hmm. uh, not Fackelman, uh, Whitey Sorkin, right, being spared by Whitey, by Whitey Sorkin and dumped on the beach should have been a cleansing um like a baptism or rebirth should have been a cleansing but within months trent kite comes back and they're back to stealing and doing drugs mm -hmm. and of course he's remembering this he's remembering this event at mm. the at the apartment after he's been dropped in the ice bath because of oh, the okay okay so being dropped in the ice bath because of the fever because he successfully defeated his addiction mm -hmm. um is presumably the cleansing and baptism that he's having seeds that he's having in one, real time whereas the one he's remembering it's making him remember the baptism that failed Okay. See, I, I have to be a hundred percent honest after rereading the beginning where again, it explicitly states I am with John Wayne and Don Gately digging up my father's head without that line. I 100% would think the ending we were saying Don Gately in his death throes. Absolutely. That he is dying from being shot in the shoulder uh, and the infection that has resulted. Yep. I would 100%. Well then what changes here? What do, does he does he die? Am I thinking this wrong? No, because Hal remembers going with him right. to okay. the punch Right. Okay. So then, uh, this is where we have everything that is inferred between the physical end of the actual pages and right. then the rebeginning at the beginning. Where, and again, this is how I've read a lot online. Whereas the theory is that. Uh, after this last time where we see Don, he starts coming around and beating the infection, and we know that he has the open... He, uh, it, it appears Otis Lord had been in the bed next to him in the room, but now right. Hal is brought in. At, we can assume that his... Uh, fuck, I completely forgot the huge detail I left out. Never mind, we'll get back to this in a second. <laughs> so, we have... Again, I'm remembering my notes as I go along. Um, well, it's all connected, so of course. Exactly. Uh, so we have the kids getting ready for the big exhibition match showing up right. and the word that's spreading in the locker room is that it's actually not the Canadian team, but some weird special Olympics team. And there's a little detail I love just for how like 
how beautifully it would play off cinematically that uh, several students leave to confirm these rumors and never return. Yep. So there is a whole attack on Enfield that happens here that I don't think we get any real details of. Like, I almost kind of wish at the beginning of the novel where we see how with the Dean of Admissions, somebody like, oh, after the Enfield tragedy or something, because it seems like the AFR show up and just start taking people out. I mean, what's, what, what's your reading on what happened with uh, the AFR siege? So, ever since... Well, we haven't talked about this at all, but this is the major conclusion of Hal's narrative mm-hmm. and the reason he, why he's so messed up at the beginning of the book. Um, there's a whole narrative arc where he winds up dosed with the DMZ. Right. And from what I can get, uh, again, a lot of the theories I see is that uh, Pemulus is looking for it in the drop ceiling panel. The drop ceiling panel has already been disheveled. Uh, a lot. So, of he knows, so he knows it's already gone. Right. It's already gone. The theory and that's I've after heard... he just left Hal um, trying to get the uh, Stice loose. Right. And the theory I've read is that the wraith of uh, James Orn and Candenza has taken it and put it on Hal's toothbrush because it is immediately after brushing his teeth that we see a lot of this stuff happening to him. Exactly. Yep. Um, so, so, in the, so in the locker room now, so that happened earlier in the morning. Mm. And by the time the kids are in the locker room getting ready to play the fundraiser, everybody's noticing that Hal's not right. Right. And a year later, Hal says that a year later in November, Hal says it was almost exactly a year ago. His one and only time in an emergency room. In a psychiatric stretcher. Right. Right. So it does seem at least confirmed that he did, he, something happened or he kept elevating to that degree that he was taken to the hospital. Also perfect timing because he, he was one of the people the AF the AFR were there for, and he seemed Correct. to get off campus just in time. I'm curious what Mario's ultimate fate is, but we can get to that. Um, I don't believe he's ever mentioned again. Okay, he's not mentioned in Year of Glad. So, mm. so the theory from there is he gets taken to the hospital, ends up in the same room with Gately. Joel right. sees him in there, immediately recognizes him, and in there becomes this whole thing like. Uh, your father's been speaking to me. We need to go and do this. And then from there, they I don't think there's, I don't think jo- Joel has anything to do with it and doesn't okay. need to because Gately, remember, Gately is he's already seen given all the information he needs. Right. He's already seen this vision of him and Hal as a right. sad eyed kid. And, and Hal knows Joel. So if Joel had been with them to dig up the head, he would have mentioned her, but he doesn't because she didn't go. Okay. And then, so from there, yeah, they go, they dig up the head, and then I don't know, but then it seems like, it, again, something I feel like is not hinted at enough, or at least discussed, is that uh, the beginning of the book, one of the immediately recontextualized passages we have is that he's trying to get admitted to a university, but now right. that we know how the tennis pro league works, going to university is for the kids who can't cut it the kids who go pro go pro right away and don't even go to college yep so whatever has happened to hal in this time and obviously communication is part of it and he even mentions like you know 
my transcripts weren't really messed with. Maybe they were dickied a little to get me over a rough patch in the last year. He's Hal has not been having a great time. Right. Ever since ever since the DMZ, he can't do anything except right. play tennis. So uh, who who gave him the DMZ then? Do you think it was James? It was. Who are we gonna go? Uh, uh, go go. Uh, let's go back to to what happened at ETA when the oh yeah okay um, when the AFR showed up because that isn't that isn't we'll get back to what you just started um, okay. that is never clearly resolved and it seems like it's been the buildup we've all been waiting for mm. so I only figured this out over the summer. But when Hal's remembering being wheeled into the emergency room in a psychiatric stretcher a year ago, he mentions that he's wheeled next to somebody sitting next to him, sitting next to him, <laughs> um, and speaking with a parodic Quebecois accent. Hmm. And describing a gigantism in her right titty. <laughs> Pretty specific. Yes. Way too specific not to mean something. So that, do we have so any who's other the only character we know who's the only character we know through the whole novel who's been speaking in a parodic Quebecois accent? Um her name escapes me right now but she was one of the uh pro rectors was she not putin court right but hal knows her okay so who's the only other character who we know and have heard speaking in a parodic quebecois accent the entire novel no remy idea. Marat. okay uh um, oh, and, remy and you, Marat, you, you you immediately have the allusion to uh his criticism of helen steeply's outfit with his tits being askew Exactly. So remember that Marat's whole thing is that he's he's going to double and accept uh, shelter and protection from the USOUS if he betrays uh, the AFR. He was not on the with the crew that went to meet the bus. He stayed behind in Boston. There's also been lots of mention of. The only thing that the AFR fear is steep hills. And where is the ETA? At the, At top, the top of, of a hill. steep hill. This <laughs> <sighs> so brings so... us to the gigantism in the right titty. The only other mention of a gigantism in a right titty is when Fackelman goes to. It's the exact same phrase. He, 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 tells, he tells Whitey Sorkin that he has a gigantism in his right titty and immediately leaves. As soon as he finds out that he doesn't have to give Whitey Sorkin back the stolen money. Okay. So he's hiding stolen money under his coat. Okay. And the idea is that Remy Moret was promised papers and in this case, presumably a lot of money to betray the AFR. And apparently he would have been injured in the attack mm -hmm. before Hill was taken there. 
because he was already there when Hal got there. Right. Okay. So that's, so, the, so that's basically all you can deduct, deduce about what happened to the AFR's attack. Okay. So it also could have taken just a little bit of nudging from Remy to get uh, Gately and Hal up to speed. Is that is, is that what you're saying? I'm not. No, no, no. Just just the, the just the AFR's attack at. Uh, okay. Okay. It was it was it was undermined and prevented by uh, Remy Wrath, who knew they were coming. Okay. And knew they were afraid and, and knew what to do. Mm-hmm. And he was paid by the USOUS to undo their plan. Wait, how did he undo it exactly? Sorry, I feel like I'm, I missed the beat somewhere. Right. So he, so remember, he, he stayed in Boston. He didn't take the bus up to intercept the Canadian team. Right. He remained in Boston. Like, wasn't um, he specifically, like, sleeping on the couch at Ennett? Because she... Because Pat Montesian offered him immediate, uh, 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 pretty much immediately offered him a place at Ennett? Nope, this is way after that. Okay. This is after this is after that whole scenario took place. All right. So he's he's just waiting. So so in theory he's just he's just waiting behind while his AFR cohorts go to ambush the bus and come and attack ETA. So because he was he's made the deal with USOUS to um, help prevent the attack. Um, he apparently was able to show up there and push them down the hill where he was also injured. <laughs> okay, God, that's a lot. But that's all you get. The only the only way you can get that is from figuring out who the person sitting next to Hal in the emergency. Oh, did we lose you, buddy? I think I heard something. All right, I'm back. Hey, there you go. Lost my internet connection. That's okay. You know, I think we're doing pretty good here. I think we could knock this out in like another 10, 15. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Dude. I forgot. I now lost track of where we were. <laughs> uh, we were talking about how Marat prevented the uh, AFR siege, but I think we'd actually kind of wrapped that up. We were going to get yeah. back yeah. to what exactly has happened to Hal in the. Um, in the time since but yeah before we get to that hey thank you again for doing this you're really putting a lot out there for me on a particularly technically difficult day that we're dealing with so thanks for sure. uh, your patience I'm, I'm, I'm having a good time with this this is this is more than just this is going to be a good podcast for me this is also i i'm coming around on some stuff about this book now now that i know there are answers to be held right exactly you're also saving me from having to read it again. Cause <laughs> as, as oh, much as, there's plenty more you haven't figured out yet. Uh, you know, as, as much as I, uh, as I might be coming around on it, it is just so not, I, I, I don't know. I need to wait and simmer on it a little bit, but we shall see. I think, and I think a lot of people do that and they think they figure out something and then they think they're done and then something else comes to mind and they're like, son of a bitch. Now I got to go figure that out. Right. There is something in it that demands to be answered or yeah. solved in a way. Right. So, so um, oh yeah, did, did we come to terms with how the DMZ ended up on Hal's toothbrush? No. What um, is your theory? So I think everybody gets gets the toothbrush idea right. So this again gets back to the bigger 
theme in the book of rebirth. Mm -hmm. So we've already covered how Gately's uh, rebirth works this time. Oh, I, I, I should have mentioned that, that so, so remember Incadenza has been, since he's telling the story, he's been watching everything Gately's done. Uh -huh. So he's basically watched Gately not being a self-centered piece of shit and doing things to help other people. Mm. And the first time somebody helped Gately, he didn't, it didn't take. And he went back to using drugs and stealing. This time, after going to Ennett House, he seems to have learned his lesson. Uh -huh. So the lesson that Gately learned is what Incandenza learns from Gately, which makes Gately his savior. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, wait, wait. I think, I think you need to elaborate on that a little bit. So what exactly does Gately do that uh, Incandenza sees as his... Uh, as something that is saving him or redeeming him in some regard. He just, he just watches Gately helping other people okay. and realize that that's the only reason that Gately um, is saved at the end. And I guess there is also the notion that, uh, Oh wait, he saves Gately. No, no, no. The, 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 oh. Because Gately saved himself by, right. by helping other people. Okay, because there is the note that uh, we, we have so much discussion, particularly in the Ennett chapters of Gately discussing um, a lot of issues people have with cliches in AA. Right. And he is somebody who is actually in direct opposition to James and Candenza. James and Candenza, he could not get over the bullshit aspect of it, the exactly. cliches, the et cetera. Where Gately also very much the same thing, but was able to get beyond that. So we do see them as slight mirror images. I'm doing a really douchey thing with my hands showing a mirror that you can't see right now, you or the audience, but rest assured, I am doing it. Um, so, okay. Well, so I'm, the idea, the idea for the, the, I think the overriding theme in the book is solipsism, which is basically an, ab, an abstraction of narcissism. Mm -hmm. So obviously, James and Cadenza, the only thing he cared about was himself. Mm -hmm. The entertainment was for his benefit, his, his, his films, just like, just like, Wallace's earlier writing was just for his own self-gratification. Even among his own children, the only one he's really close to is the one that just helps him with his thing and doesn't really ask too many questions. Exactly. So he's, so Incandenza is just basically through the entire narrative clearly shown to be just a self-centered piece of trash. Now, how much of that do you think is a reflection of David Foster Wallace on himself? Because another note- but I think that's the intention of the book. Okay, because one of the notes I'm remembering now is they discussed that in his filmmaking, critics often wondered, uh, <clears throat> oh, I forgot that entire particular film where it was a gay prostitute and his John. Right. And the gay prostitute insists that he wear protection. And then the man, while mounting him, basically cuts not only his own penis, but slices the condom off. And then it's revealed that it is the prostitute who has HIV not the John, and then a third of the movie is just the guy, the prostitute saying, I'm a murderer, I'm a murderer. Right, and but that takes place while Hal is now, the only thing he can do is lie on his back and watch movies. Right, right. Which, is, which is like anybody who's taken, who's, who's taken LSD. Right, uh, but the, the, there is the line in there where uh, critics wondered whether this was a statement of James Candenzer or whether he was just a really shitty editor. Which to right. me seemed to be a direct, like, gotta admit, that was kind of my opinion on uh, Infinite Jest as I was going through initially. Exactly. So, 
a but lot so, of the- so the film the reason the film is there in the narrative is now because remember this whole idea of trying to get Hal is trying to communicate to Hal. James thinks it's Hal's fault that Hal's not listening to him. Mm. Just like the pro- just like this older gentleman thinks that the prostitute doesn't trust him. Mm-hmm. So uh, the older gentleman does what he does to get revenge on the younger guy, just like James and Condenza uh, tries to do something to Hal to make him pay attention to him. Mm-hmm. So that so basically, I think the idea for accomplice in the narrative is that Incandenza is basically now portrayed as the accomplice in Hal's end. <laughs> He's right. the murderer because he gives him the DMZ. To, exactly. So it, it it does seem that the mold Hal ate because when when we see Hal through the bulk of the book. He does seem to have a little bit of the same of the problem that James had uh, projected onto him for so long, where he he's a performer. But then this also goes along a little bit with Oren. Oren is, you know, I'll be whoever you want me to be, but is not doesn't have that much at his actual core. So maybe uh, Hal is kind of I mean, if anything, it seems like they're just kind of like their father, really. Right. But, well, yeah, they're, they're as self-centered as he is. Mm-hmm. But so, and I just did a butt so. God damn it, this fucking book is ruining me. Um, <laughs> so he takes the DMZ and Hal has a bit of a change, whereas before he could communicate performatively but really felt nothing on the inside. Right. Now he feels many things on the inside. But, but he's he, trapped in his own head and can't get out. Exactly, which is... Uh, I mean, you can't really put too much on Wallace for, you know, not really giving us the mechanical structure of how such a thing happens, but it is clearly happening. Right. So I guess the question is, uh, so clearly during, during the time after the AFR attack, Hal somehow ends up in the hospital, somehow gets hooked up with Don Gately, and he is just... I don't know whether he's degrading at a point that like will continue, like he will slowly become less and less communicative. I forget if we had any like long-term uh, stories about the other DMZ recipients and other. No, places. all we know about him is that he was locked up because he was thought to have lost his mind. Right, and so it seems that's uh, in the very near future for Hal, I suppose. Well, he's got the ETA staff there to manage him, which is what mm-hmm. they're doing in the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. So that people don't think he's lost his mind. Right. That, that was actually one of the arguments I made when, uh, and that'll be on the next episode where I talk to the guys from the first two episodes. But uh, it would seem to me almost that if you had this trouble communicating but could still play tennis, I would think it would be harder to actually go to school for tennis than to just be a tennis pro. I imagine a tennis pro would be, I mean, there'd be a problem of not being able to do interviews, but uh, his original goal might've been something attainable as opposed to school, which seems like it would be less attainable due to his degradation. Right. And of course that doesn't really make much sense. It's almost like, uh, well, I mean, I, I, obviously, you're right that it seems like he will never be able to play professionally. Right. So why are 
the ETA trying to pawn him off on the university? Do they plan on helping him get through university as well? Possibly. I, I really, I, I, I read the ETA people helping him out as a, particularly Uncle Tavis as a, something terrible has happened to this once bright, promising kid. Right. If we can just do what we do, if we can just like roll him through the system with a little oomph behind him, like maybe, maybe we can get him through this. Maybe, right. maybe he'll, he'll come around. Who's to say, but at this step, like he needs to move on to something else. So we need to get him over this hump. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, they don't know what's happened to him either. Right. Nobody does really. I well, we do. <laughs> right. But to, uh, see, this is part of the reason I'm very curious. Pemulus has something to tell Hal and never gets to tell him. So I'm curious about what that was in addition to uh, his ultimate fate. I know there could have been something. Well, we know uh, the funny thing is Pemulus never tells Hal what he saw between John Wayne and Avril. Yet at the end, it seems like Hal is aware of it anyway. And I'm yeah, unsure. Exactly. I'm, I'm unsure how he knows that information. I don't think it matters. He okay. he gives a list of he gives a list of all the people that that Abel was sleeping in sleeping with, including Bane. Yeah, Bane, uh, the hairy-shouldered Ken Johnson, the particularly torturesome to himself uh, Islamic uh, medical attaché. Mm -hmm. So he so, knew. Right. What, what what do you think is the ultimate reason uh, James and Candenza killed himself? Uh, I, there are probably several reasons in the narrative. Mm -hmm. I think the, the obvious one is that he broke his promise to Joel and drank the bottle of wild turkey, mm. which means that he would lose Joel, which is at that point all he cared about. Right, and obviously, there's quite a quite a lot of attention put on Joelle. Right, where she, in, in and of herself, is kind of like a proto entertainment, somebody who can't be looked away from. Right. Okay. Shit, Tim. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I have to ask. I'm 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 drawing a blank. Can you think of anything we missed? Uh... Oh, um, just the where's it the the role of the role of Lyle. So so Lyle's described as basically the Buddha. Right. His appearance is like the Buddha. He practices Buddhist meditation. So the reason that he's yeah we never got to this either. The reason that he's stuck in this state is that the Eastern religions. Uh, require earning karma to achieve reincarnation into a new being. So Lyle is trying to earn karma to be reincarnated by helping students ask their questions, help James do all his nonsense. He's trying really hard, mm -hmm. but he's still self-centered because he's addicted to sweat, so he's only helping these students so that he can lick sweat off them and feed yeah. his addiction. I never quite see. I I thought somehow the sweat was, and this was pre-learning about him being a wraith. I honestly thought the sweat was like some kind of 
tea leaves kind of thing. Like that's how he was getting the information. Right. No, it's because it's because he sweated to death in the mic in the uh, in the sauna. Mm. So now he the only thing he craves is sweat after he sweated to death. So his addiction is to to the sweat that he needs that he lost when he died. Right. So he will perpetually be stuck in that. So um, that's selfish. So he's only helping people to get sweat. Right. Okay. He's not doing it to help them. He also glued ortho or no, uh, what was it? Orthostice. Remember, orthostice glued Lyle to the towel dispenser. Oh yeah, I, I didn't. Lyle even just waves it off. Mm-hmm. Well, so because Lyle has these extra spiritual abilities, he's the one who who bolted Stice's bed up by the ceiling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Out of Just, revenge. That's, there's not a whole lot of karma to be earned by doing stuff like that. Yeah, I'm still curious what Stice's ultimate... Like, I don't even know what he represents in the story other than, you know, the darkness. But, like, yeah, I'm not sure, like, what happened. His role in the novel is one of the most confusing to me. Because so, for a lot of it, he seems like he's just kind of there. So there is a there is a narrative that was that was edited and not included in the book. And it involved Orthostice being referred to as the Wraithster. Right. There was like some kind of possession angle, maybe. Right. So, as far as I can tell, that Wallace was okay with that being removed because all it did was provide another example of James being selfish mm-hmm. by using this poor student in his attempt to communicate with Al. Hmm. Um, by possessing him, mm-hmm. that was that was the idea in this in this deleted uh, and or in this narrative cut from the text. So this the the reason that everything supporting that is still in the book is because it's interwoven with everything else. But but there's the idea that the the, the wraith could only get out from the casket if a hole was drilled down to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that the only reason that the Wraith can communicate with Gately is because Gately has a gaping shoulder wound or hole hmm. to get in, for the Wraith to get in. Okay. And the reason the orthostice is stuck to the window is so that his face has to get pulled off it which leaves a gaping wound in his face and his in his forehead, so that the wraith can get in to possess him. Wow. Okay. Okay. This is this is all stuff I would have never thought of, but I mean, it kind of it checks out. <laughs> so I. Uh, so so so. Uh, where were we? To, to to get back to Lyle, the. Uh, where is it? So so. We've already covered this, but the Wraith said even a garden variety Wraith could move at the speed of quanta, be anywhere, anytime, and hear in symphonic total of the thoughts of men. But it couldn't ordinarily affect anybody or anything solid. Mm-hmm. So as a garden variety Wraith, James can't ordinarily affect anything. Right. So his best friend's Lyle, who is a quote-unquote Wraith of some kind, mm-hmm. who can affect something solid because he has not yet been reincarnated. Do we see any other wraiths in the book other than uh, 
I, I can think of three spirits, which I guess we'll use as synonymous with Wraith. Right. And it would be James and Candenza, Lyle, and the Antitois brother, who we only see after his immediate disembarking from this mortal coil. Do we All see right. any others that you're aware of? No. Okay. So, so because Lyle is helping James do all this stuff to gain karma for himself, so he'll be reincarnated, he's the only one who could have actually put the DMZ on the toothbrush. Okay. Ah. Hmm. Okay. So remember that Hal goes to, into the bathroom and finds the window open. Well, James and Condenza's race can't open the window, so right. who opened the window? Well, in this scenario, that would have had to have been Lyle. Right. He later sees a figure sitting out on the snow, described leaning back exactly the way James and Condenza's described through the whole novel. Hmm. So the, the, my, my conjecture is that Lyle tried to find the DMZ, where James told him it was hidden, couldn't find it, which is why all the ceiling tiles are thrown all over the place, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, had to get James to come and show him exactly where it was. Mm -hmm. So he opened the bathroom window to let James in to show him where it was. Okay. That happened... And from the description of how much snow is piled up, it's exactly the same amount piled up on the figure out in the tennis courts as there is in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. You have me on that one. Um, I guess I have one final question, unless you have something else to add that you didn't think we got to, but what is the thing Pemulus has to tell Hal and what is Pemulus's ultimate fate? I guess. Also remember Pemulus out. is terrified of getting kicked out. Right. And it seems like that has definitely come to pass. And well, but he still thinks he has the card he still thinks he has the card to to uh, uh, blackmail Avril mm -hmm. because he saw them together. Right. So, so that's his card left to play. He he expects. Now remember, all he's been doing is using Hal as a as a uh, drug buyer. Right. Hamilton is nothing but a drug dealer. Mm. And so he's expecting Hal to do something to help him stay in school, to go and, and, and plead with his mom to let him stay. That's mm. the important thing. Okay. Because Hal's basically the only person left who can help him. Right. Okay. So that's what he's trying. He's trying to get through to Hal that like, Hey, this is happening to me. Um, but they never get to have that conversation. Correct. And because Hal can't even respond anymore mm -hmm. by that point. And, and then he goes out and then, of course, then he goes and finds his, his damn DMZ missing anyway. Uh -huh. And that's why, and the ceiling tiles all over the place. So he's just out at the dumpster trying to see if somebody had accidentally discovered it and just thrown the tennis shoe away. <laughs> okay. And that's so, the end. That's the last we hear of Michael Pemulus. Mm -hmm. Looking right. at a dumpster. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think that's uh, the end of this podcast as well. Unless, can you think of any other major thing we didn't get to? I can't really. Oh, wait, you know, I, I, I have a little one. Was Joel actually disfigured or not? 
all the evidence suggests that she was not. Okay. And oh, what's the stuff I've been through lately? <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of those things where it, it it could easily go one way or another. For me, what I thought the clincher was was that uh, Hal was the one who related the story of what happened to her with the acid, which to me seemed like is a piece of information that would not have gotten to Hal had it not actually happened because we would have known from Joel, we would have known from Oren. Um, well, but I don't know what, I'd have to look at exactly what Hal says about hmm. it. So the first mention, the first mention of this in the book is before we know who Joel is. Mm-hmm. It's when we're listening to that, um, 60 minutes plus or minus show that uh, Madame Psychosis does. And she mentions she meant she's going through the you hid booklet about things that they can help you hide uh-huh. hidden. And one of the things she mentions is the fatally pultritudinous. Welcome. Well, pultritudinous means astonishingly beautiful. Mm. So the fatally astonishingly beautiful is something that they will help people hide, mm-hmm. which would be a reason that she would certainly want to join. Um, and it's and of course the fatally would be her mother, who killed herself after her father revealed that he was in love with Joel. Mm-hmm. So the mother killed herself because of Joel's beauty. And apparently, James Incandenza killed himself because of Joel's beauty. Okay, that, yeah. would be the, that would be the fatally part. That would check out. And like I said, it does uh, refer back to one of my favorite things. It, it alludes to a work of Vonnegut. I believe it was in Dead Eye Dick or Mother Night. Okay. Where there is the character who appears in several of his books who uh, is like mind-blowingly beautiful, but to her own annoyance. To where right. she yeah. actually says, okay. like, should I... Should I drop dead and go to heaven? I want to ask God what he wrote on my face that people would not look away. Like somebody oh, okay. who's just annoyed by their beauty this entire time. They don't go to this level, but uh, again, just that does exist somewhere in the literal literature. Okay, pantheon. sure, yeah. Okay, okay. And so her use of the name Madame Psychosis, of course, is that the reason James gave her that nickname is because she, her beauty, brought him back to life after Avril had cheated on her. Mm-hmm. The DMZ is named Madame Psychosis narratively because James and Condenza sees that as having the possibility of bringing Hal back to life. Okay, okay. Oh, oh sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't explain. Madame Psychosis uh, is, a, is a sound-alike for metempsychosis, which is reincarnation. That I had no idea whatsoever, and I've there never heard go. before since. Sorry, I, I forgot will... to explain that part. <laughs> <laughs> so all the references to Madame Psychosis refer to James thinking about uh, reincarnation, being born again, whatever. Okay, I have. So of course, that ties into Gately's rebirth and mm. makes James realize that he was completely wrong about the whole thing. He was just a self-centered asshole. Okay, I have one final question. <laughs> Is this your favorite book? Like, do you are you this analytical on everything you really, really love? Or is it just this one particular book? I'm curious. 
I don't read a lot. The, the, the literature I read in, in high school and college, I was, I suppose, reasonably analytical about it and went mm. to enough lengths to figure it out. But I've never come across anything that took this much work to figure out. Okay. So that's what I was curious about. If it was like whether this spoke to you as a person or this as a work of art that you got so deep in the mud of this that you could make all these, you know, all these men from clay with it, it would seem. But uh, <laughs> I got I to gotta say, you have a lot. I, I can't poke any immediate holes in anything you said. Um, again, one of, one of my big reasons for starting this podcast is that so many people defend it to the death as if it's beyond criticism. Yet, even with all you have, all the brain cells you've invested in it, you've also flat out said at certain points like yeah that one we don't really know but and, and that is what i've always respected about everything i've read about you is you see a lot of people who they feel like they need an answer for everything and so they will defend to the death something they really don't have a lot behind but right exactly every, everything you have here you seem to have plenty you have seen have plenty behind it and you've done a lot more work than i have so well you've only read it once yeah, I guess I'll... Uh... I'm not sure you're not doing just as well as I was after reading it once. Hmm. So what you're saying is, if I read <laughs> it again, and then maybe again and again and again, I could be Tim Eastwood? Uh, yes. That would be the ultimate vindication of this podcast. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Tim. I, well, as, I, I to, as I've said, the stuff that you hate about it is totally legitimate. Mm-hmm. At, least until, at least until you realize why it was done that way in the first place. So. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading some of his other fiction now. I've said I've never read any of his other fiction, only his nonfiction and essays, which I liked quite a bit. So I'm wondering if maybe I can get into something that will just get me in a certain... Le- the, the phrase I've used repeatedly for this book is I am just so not charmed by his style of writing and storytelling that it doesn't get to me but uh right and it's analytical and it's vaguely academic yes and i have i have a a college background so i'm used to analytical and academic so Mm -hmm. no i have always been a fake it till i make it like yeah i have an associate's degree maybe i can work this through so (laughs) Well, if you have a reason to, sure. You probably could. All right. Tim, I think that is our episode. Thank you so much for uh, giving us your time and, again, dealing with some of these technical difficulties. Um, Yeah, uh, let us know anything you want us to find. Where can we find you? Anything you're working on? I'm... I'm... uh, I know I'm on the, the Facebook... Wallace site under my name. I'm on Reddit under something with time in it. Oh, <laughs> that's you. That was you. I had no idea that was you all this time. Do you know the Do you know the username? I, I have it auto filled, so I never type it. It is a a high time. That's all it. one word, and the time is T H Y M E. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Oh, I've been talking to you longer than I even realized. <laughs> I, do, what's your username on there? 
Um, well, I, I finally, no, no, no. I finally consolidated to, uh, just my name, but before I was posting under the name diamond Joe Quim. Yep. Yeah. I don't remember responding to that much. I, I didn't post in there much aside from, I, I would get in arguments with, uh, a lot of people like hate posting under my links for the podcast. So that, that... <laughs> I saw some of those and I just stopped wasting my time with them. Uh, well, it's actually gotten to the fun point now where people will come and defend me. Like every week, somebody will be like, you don't need to tell us about your fucking podcast. And then everybody else will chime in like, this is the first I'm hearing about it. What is this? Like, yeah, no, it's working. This is how you promote something. I'm sorry it's bothering you, but. Yeah, no, I didn't have any problem with that. I thought that was. Oh, yeah, no, no, not you well, specifically. The other. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, Tim, I got to get rolling because I actually uh, have to take a road trip before these, these damn winter Sundays when the sun goes down at like 2.30 in the afternoon. Yeah, uh, no kidding. Yeah. But yeah, again, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, yeah, we have one more episode next week, but this this is the end. Infinite Jest. Like, well, you've already recorded that one, right? Yeah, we are. Because that one was so close to Christmas and I had to coordinate with two different people, I, uh, yeah, I tried to get that one in the can early. So, gotcha. All right. Yeah, this is the Merry last Christmas. one I'm recording. Yep. Merry Christmas, Tim Eastwood. Uh, happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas to everybody. There you go. Enjoy it, everybody.